Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Wiley Society Update Series. I'm Bill Delavise. Today, we're talking about transforming access and data in the world of scientific and scholarly communications. Last episode, we heard about trends in institutional and library funding that are shaping the society publishing landscape of the future. In this episode, we look into the future of publishing itself. We'll hear excerpts from an amazing talk given by Todd Toller, Wiley's Vice President of Digital Product Management. This talk was recorded live in September 2015 at Wiley Society Executive Seminar at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., in front of a live audience. Todd described how research communication is evolving beyond the typeset article into formats that are richer, more discoverable, and create a dynamic research pipeline that runs all the way from the instruments used to collect data to how research results are accessed. Before we get too far into the future, though, Todd started out with some history. Vannevar Bush wrote a provocative article um, in Life magazine in the 1930s. It was called As We May Think. And he had this fantasy about being connected to the world's information and this act of sort of being a traveler on that information versus the creator of that information. It was a very influential essay. And I'm sure we all know what he was talking about, right? He was talking about the Memex, uh, which was a device where a person can store all of their books, records, and communications on microfilm. And it was basically sort of an extension of the human brain that sort of looked like a banker's desk. This was the 1930s. 50 years later, uh, Tim Berners-Lee separated that concept from the hardware and implemented the hypertext transfer protocol. We call that HTTP. Um, and hypertext is sort of defined as branching and responding text. I just want you to think about that for a second, because as I talk about research data, I want to talk about hyperdata as branching and responding data. And that is in order to create a dynamic research data pipeline that goes all the way from the instrument data to the consumption of that data and creates a world of research reproducibility. And when I say reproducibility, especially I was thinking about what some of the other speakers are saying, I mean it in its most simplest definition, which is reproducibility. The ability to build on, or as Vannevar Bush would say, the ability to trailblaze or, trans, or, or basically navigate across the work of others. Um, it turns out that that platform that Tim Berners-Lee created was actually quite a good one for distributed mass collaboration. It was very good for a group of people who wants to get something big done. Um, when you have a big problem that needs lots of brains and lots of different kinds of approaches thrown at them, the internet turns out to be a very good way to work. And uh, when, for instance, so Linux is my favorite example. So when the world needed a robust computer operating system that wasn't created by a private corporation in Redmond, Washington, uh, it made especially good use of this platform. And coming out of this Linux effort came standards and tools that solve particularly thorny problems that come up when a lot of people need to get to together and try to work together. So a big one was version control. Um, how do you keep track of how one person builds upon the work of another without losing the ability to understand how that work evolved over time? And GitHub and Git actually came directly out of Linux. It was a very clever system where people can create branches off of a person's code. Then they can re-merge that code, assuming the original uh, author wanted it re-merged. Um, it was basically the hypercode. It was the branching and, re and responding code. Uh, if a person wanted to take that code in a fundamentally new direction, they could create a new fork. Let's pause here for a second, because this might be a little rough if you're not a programmer. 
Todd is talking about Git and GitHub. Git is a version control system used in software development that allows you to keep track of your files and modifications to your files in a central repository. GitHub is a website that allows you to upload your Git code repository online and collaborate with other coders to create new programs. So imagine you're a member of a large software programming team. Your team is writing a new program and based on its requirements, you know it will include some pretty basic code. You can find that basic code in GitHub and because the whole website is designed for collaboration, you can easily work with other members of your team to create a new fork off of the source code to write the new program. The new code you've created becomes part of GitHub too, and other coders can build off of your work. All right, so here's Todd again, talking about GitHub. They also found out something much more basic about how this platform the internet can do, which was uh, because it was based on open standards and anyone can access it anywhere in the world without needing to buy anything, um, and because tools like GitHub created this persistence, meaning that everyone's work was consistently and persistently available, there was almost zero friction in the system. And this it turned out to be wildly productive compared to previous ways of working. Um, people, and this is, by the way, you know, there's a, something called Linus's Law, so Linus Torvalds, the, the Linux, he says, with enough eyeballs on the problem, all bugs are shallow. And keep in mind that these people weren't even getting paid, um, and they weren't even formally being recognized. They were working this way was sort of addictive, and people worked on these projects because they felt they were part of something important and part of something bigger. So the fact that people can collaborate on this platform and accomplish big things together as long as you take out this friction by using open standards, people developed a sort of a shared value. It was almost a joint hallucination that working this way would pay off in the long run. This sort of ethos becomes the Silicon Valley's biggest export. As Tim O'Reilly says, create more value than you capture. The scientific community has the same challenges, the same ethos, and is increasingly compromised of the same people from this open source software and, and, and open, open science, I'm sorry, an open web world. So that was just basically a preamble to talk about how we're, we're arriving at the end of a relatively stable period in research communication dissemination. So it's, it's basically punctuated equilibrium. We're about to shoot up to the next level. Um, the last major disruption in research communication was in the 1990s when platforms like JSTOR and Wiley InterScience first went online. And that, I'll call this the first wave of digital research publishing. And the first wave solved the library's problems of storage they didn't want to build new wings to put journal stacks in. Uh, it also solved this problem of distributed access to published works. People don't have to actually come into the library. But it basically just put a digital lens over a print-based system. It didn't really take advantage of the internet. Uh, the second wave will be much more about providing this sort of connected semantic knowledge graph um, of scientific discovery. And, and we will really figure out how to use the internet for what it's good for. So the scientific community shares many of the same challenges as the coding community. The coding community found GitHub, where they could build off of each other's work. That has turned out to be an incredibly successful way of working. As of this recording, GitHub reports having over 14 million users. The fastest growing user group? Scientists. GitHub, though, is still very different from the way that most scholarly and scientific knowledge is communicated. Here's Todd, describing the present-day publishing process. So 95% of a journal's value is delivered digitally, and it has been since the 1990s, but we still act as if it's delivered in print. We still create manuscripts uh, that are paginated before they're turned into digital files by typesetters, increasingly offshore. 
we still actually think in, un in units of pages. We price our vendor deals in pages. Um, we literally think about pages. Offers, authors still correct page proofs as if they're getting a galley copy of a book that they're going to publish. And anything that doesn't make this paginated article we call supporting information, which implies that it wasn't actually important enough to make the article. And our value proposition to the author is essentially give us your Word doc and all of your images. We'll send it off to our article factory. We'll turn it into a paginated file. Uh, by the way, this will take no fewer than 21 days. Um, we'll send you back, a, and then we'll give you two PDFs. We'll give you one with your article, and we'll give you one with all your supporting information, and then we'll put it online. We are still, even though we are still marking these up with specific publisher metadata using XML standards, like Wiley has their, our own version. It's called Wiley ML3G. So we go through traditional EEO stands for editorial office system. So it's a traditional manuscript editorial system like Scholar One Manuscripts or eJournal Press, which is what authors and peer reviewers log into to work around manuscripts. And they do that looking at Word docs and JPEGs. So out of that EEO, we mark it up in our own custom XML and then before they make their way online. And, and all, that, all that time, Google doesn't actually speak XML. It's not the open web standards that Google speaks. So none of this value add, most of this value add is around pagination and layout. It's not actually around the scientific meaning or semantic terms of the content. So it doesn't help people find it when it's on the internet. And the discovery, as we know, is moving out of the library. So only 10% of Wiley Online Library's traffic comes from paid library A&I, which would be completely consistent with the idea that librarians are not finding room in their budgets for things like increasingly for things like Scopus. We actually specialize as publishers in the making, hosting, and moving around of files. That's basically what we do. Um, this is still all based on this page first publishing idea. But what happens when you get digital first? So this is where it gets very interesting. Um, what happens when we make network linked data our primary product and not files? So uh, when we start to use things like JSON-LD, which embeds semantic code in a document which users can't see but Google can read and Google can tell, for instance, that this is a data set, that maybe this data set has an associated R package that has some statistical code on it and maybe it's sitting in a repository and Google can find all that stuff and searchers can find all that stuff. Google knows what a paper is about. Google knows what the paper's methods might be. Uh, if you're looking to search for all of the studies that were done with a certain reagent in a mouse uh, without necessarily knowing what they were about, you can start to do that in a world of linked data. Uh, a new generation of data, uh, of open standards around, we, we mentioned SPSS earlier, but increasingly researchers are using things like R, which is completely open source, because when you go to, when you write your statistical analysis code in R, you can go to these vast libraries of value-added packages. So if you're a life scientist, you can go to Bioconductor, download an analysis package, analyze your data all using code, easily put it all up on GitHub and share it with other researchers. New database standards like CouchDB make everything talk to each other. Um, versus the document-based databases that we use today that are based on XML. So these new web centers are emerging, and this is a little hard to see, but we're essentially going to get to this idea where authors are submitting things like Word, doc, Word docs, and we're instantly transferring them into these web standards. So we're basically converting them to digital content right away, ready to be put on the web. Uh, and then we'll add value to them, so the same actors will log into these systems and they will annotate and improve the content and make it better. So the way this is going to work, we're planning one of these systems at Wiley. PLOS has got one called Aperta, which you might have heard of. You'll see a lot of these new systems coming. If you're a publisher, getting on, onto one of these new workflows is your Iowa. Sorry to keep name-checking my earlier speakers, but uh, this really is the thing that you need to do, because what this allows you to do 
is you work in native digital content, peer reviewers, uh, editors, and authors log in and create annotations around rendered web content. Uh, you create documents on the fly when you need them. They never go uh, offshore and be tur are turned into uh, pagination. If you need to go to print, you just create, PO you just create print on demand out of this. Um, and it's instantly ready for digital distribution. So there's a lot of movement in the space. You will see a lot of vendors coming up that are going to be on these workflows. Um, actually, O'Reilly, I, I mentioned Tim O'Reilly, but O'Reilly was one of the first to do this with a, a publishing system they did called Atlas and Chimera. And also Inkling Habitat is an early example, if you know about that platform for creating books. That's one of these digital first platforms. So this, by the time these hit journals, uh, this is going to really change everything. Let's pause again here, because Todd's absolutely right. These new systems are going to dramatically change how publishing works. Remember that coder who used GitHub to work collaboratively with her team to write a new software program? Now, imagine you're a researcher. You've measured a massive amount of data, analyzed it with specific code, and produced a set of computational results in the form of text, figures, and tables. You can put your data in a repository, and you can load the code that you use to analyze the data into GitHub. Now you need to publish your results so that other researchers will have access to the information contained in your research. Because the publishing industry still operates on a print-first workflow, publishing your article actually flattens all of that rich information into a printable PDF and relegates the data collection and analysis aspect of your work to supplementary materials. In a digital-first workflow, the links between the data, the code used to analyze the data, and interpreted results of research are all preserved and easily discoverable online. And what happens to the PDF? Well, let's go back to Todd. So in the future, instead of a PDF, a researcher will be able to download a, J a linked data package. And assuming all of those inputs to that article are there, uh, they can essentially rerun the analysis. You know, it's basically something you can install the article and rerun it is one way of thinking about it. This is already happening. Uh, you know, in, in, in the research community. People are not waiting for publishers to fix the famously uh, unhelpful supporting information system as a way of sharing data. They're already, there's a movement called literate statistical programming where people are going into the statistics programming like R, writing a narrative right in there and then using a package called Knitter to create a basically article that you can rerun the entire data analysis and share that. This is already happening. So the, we, we have to get to a place where we can handle all of this and get it out uh, to people who are trying to read the research. So maybe we'll lose the PDF, which means that the publishing workflow upstream of the printed page, typesetting, reviewing page proofs, and all the publication steps familiar to many of you will have to change as well. But the benefits of a digital-first world will be staggering. In a page or print-first world, publishing the results of research is expensive, time-intensive, and full of opportunities for human error. Information that should be linked is broken apart and packaged into crude file formats that make it harder for researchers to reproduce and expand on the efforts of others. In a digital-first world, publishing will be less expensive and much more automated, reducing the potential for human error and lowering barriers to publish and access information. Research will be communicated in a wider range of formats that will make it easier to track, discover, and reproduce. We're not there yet, but in the short term, there's a lot that publishers and societies can do to enable progress toward a digital-first world. Societies and publishers can work together to implement data policies. They can develop new ways to support authors throughout the publication process to ensure that measured data and analytic code are documented and distributed in a standard way. Of course, 
we can never be 100% sure what the future of research publishing will look like. But Todd has a couple of ideas. I think a version of Linus's law will emerge as the organizing principle of academic research. So this is going to be a system where, uh, of basically career recognition that embraces the hacker ethic. You know, hackers love sharing. They love anti They have a sense of anti-bureaucracy rebellion. Do it yourself. But they also, it's also an ethic that never excludes entrepreneurship and profit. Um, and there is going to be a strong expectation from the research for the future that we, that the scientific collaboration happens on internet time and not publisher time. We're not, you know, this idea of issues. And, you know, and, and that being the cadence of scientific collaboration is not going to survive. That the publisher's role is going to have to transform. We're going to have to be conversant in this sort of new language of cloud sharing and real-time data analysis um, and open discovery. And what is the role of the journal in this? I'm not actually sure. I mean, I think I'll ask a question. Is editorial curation going to be as important as ever in this future? Is there going to be a role for the subscription journal as a provider of context and narrative that sits over this data layer? Is there still going to be a thrill in getting published in a journal like Science? And, or can publishers sort of maintain this presence in the value chain as a referee wrangler? Um, I will just leave those questions hanging in the air. But hopefully I've given you a sense of what needs to happen for the answer to even possibly be yes to those questions. It's crazy, right? What Todd describes is radical and exciting and probably not on the immediate horizon. These changes won't happen overnight. But I hope this talk has sparked some thoughts about how to prepare for a digital-first publishing future. Digital-first publishing has implications in a host of other areas as well. And in future episodes, we'll learn more about many of them, including open science, supporting peer review, access to research data, and much more. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. This Wiley Society Updates podcast is a production of Wiley Society Services Program. At Wiley, we're helping societies make a difference in the world by working with them to expand their reach, impact, quality, and sustainability of their publishing programs. Our theme music was provided by Jason Shaw, and editing was done by Dennis Velasco. The Wiley Society Executive Seminar, from which this episode was derived, was designed with support from Alison Labate, Caroline McCarley, Kathleen Mulcahy, Swapna Pate, Elizabeth Welsh, and Davina Quarterman. The show's producer is Anna Ayler, who also produced the Society Executive Seminar. Our editorial advisory group includes Andy Robinson, Sarah Phibbs, David Nicholson, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. You can listen to previous episodes and receive notifications when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society Updates channel in iTunes, or go to exchanges.wiley.com societies and sign up to our mailing list to learn more about Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing. Until next time, I'm Bill Deloise, and this has been a Wiley Society Update.